Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We were just looking at uh, an Onion article, weren't we? We were. Yeah. Uh, it was from what, a classic from 97. Uh, study, study reveals, reveals babies, babies are, are stupid. stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, which was a phenomenally funny piece of the time because, uh, you know, you, you read all this stuff about, oh, babies are really, you know, there's a lot going on with the, with the mind of an infant, and this sort of turned that all on its head by saying, you know, actually babies are really stupid. Because it's easy to, to, to sort of think, think that on the surface because right. they, are, they are helpless. Uh, they don't really, really understand how things work. They uh, can't talk. They can't talk. They're just crapping themselves like crazy. Drooling. Drooling. Uh, and, and, and just having intense emotional reactions to things, be it a peekaboo game, uh, some shiny object, or um, uh, you know, just or something even mildly unpleasant, just set them off. But turns out that they are learning machines. Yes, the they larval are, um, human is pretty amazing. They are, yeah, they're absolutely amazing. In the same way that like a larval insect, like it, it doesn't look like much, but its whole thing is eat and grow, eat and grow. Similar thing with the with the larval human. It's it's uh, its whole mission is to learn and grow, learn and grow, and and eat and poop a lot. But uh, learn, but, grow, and think. Though. And think, yeah. And this is very different for our species. Um, there are some really good uh, articles out there about this extended childhood that we have. Like, why in the world does it take us so long to acquire language, to grow up, to fend for ourselves? Yeah, because there are there are prey most prey animals uh, out there, such as you know deer, uh, antelope, uh, what have you. They're born and they have to be on their feet. And, uh, and and running in pretty short order in order to survive. There's no uh, sticking around the the nest necessarily, or um, you know they, they they just they have to turn into adults very fast. Yeah. Um, likewise, the kitten that um, uh, my wife found is currently in a box in our house. Bean. Bean. I the, like to call kitten. him Mr. Bean, but yeah. <laughs> like uh, like pretty pretty quickly. If we first got him, you know, he's, he's all. You know, awkward and falling down and all, and and but and he's still awkward and falling down. But you can already see him doing the things that cats have to do. He's already running through the exercises of hunting and pouncing and and you know, it's like all the programming is there. Right. And as soon as his body catches up in just you know a matter of of you know months or weeks, he's going to be good to go. Yeah, he'll be up and running. He doesn't need to be put in a sling. For 10 months, right, right. and carry it around. But he also doesn't need to learn all that much. Right. So compared to other species, we humans, we have a much, a much longer period of immaturity. And psychologist Alison Gopnik actually says that there's a reason for that, that long periods of immaturity are correlated to higher degree of flexibility, intelligence, and learning. So in other words, this neocortex that we got, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago that, that, that helps us so much in our communication really takes a lot of effort, a lot of resources to sort of feed that before we can become uh, totally cognizant in a way that we think of ourselves as adults, right? Right. And we see the scenario in the, the classic crow versus chicken um, yeah. argument, right? Because a chicken is, is pretty stupid. There's not a lot going on with the chicken. Um, and they're up and running pretty soon. They're up and running pretty soon, pretty fast. You know, chick doesn't stay a chick very long. Pretty soon, it's a stupid chicken. 
Not so the crow. The crow is pretty brilliant. I mean, the crow yeah. is a. Uh, I mean, there have been all these fabulous uh, um, studies about crow intelligence. We could, we could, and probably should do a whole episode on crow intelligence because they're tool users. They can be trained to put coins, uh, collect coins, and put them into machines. Um, <laughs> they're 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 just incredible. Uh, incredible birds. Yeah. Uh, but they also have a longer period of development. Well, and as Alison Gopnik says, one one of those creatures ends up on the cover of Science and one ends up in your soup pot. <laughs> so there's there's a reason for that, right? Again, uh, crows do have a longer period of immaturity. Uh, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is, again, this idea of building up uh, the neocortex, this communication centers in the brain, and, um, and we have touched on this a bit in terms of babies and their ability to mimic even um, their crying. We talked right. about They're this crying last time. with a German accent. Yeah, a German accent or a French accent days after they're born, such as their ability to, to really absorb information about how language works. And I thought that it was really interesting to start this talk off with um, with language as sort of like the crux of our being. And I I've, wanted I've heard it described as the, the operating system for the human brain. You yes. Know? I mean we're the we're the hardware but you need uh, Windows on there, right, to run it. Well, language is our Windows. Yeah, Elizabeth Spelke, she's a cognitive psychologist. She has actually said, like, this is the reason why why we can do what we can do, why we have this combinatorial approach to life. Mm -hmm. Because of language, we can, um, you know, enter into these scenarios where, let's say, you're a you're a year old and you're trying to figure out three-dimensional areas. Um, but then you begin to name things and then you start to be able to put this, again, language is, is at the bedrock of this ability. Right. You begin to put these concepts with words and you're just lopping on more and more knowledge without this ability, this language, then which makes us uniquely human in terms of its complexity. Uh, we wouldn't be the the people we are today, even just sitting here talking about this. Right. Like you think of like what words do for us. Um, like you th think of a word like genocide. One word that that uh, summons an intense amount of information about mm -hmm. something that's very complicated. Um, like if I'm just if I don't have a word for genocide, then the trying to think about it like would occupy the entire mind, you know, and, and you still wouldn't be able to grasp it. You can sort of wrap it up in that term. And then something like uh, ballet is pretty complicated as well, but I can wrap it up under the term ballet. And then I can simultaneously hold both the word ballet and genocide in my mind and collide those ideas, which you can't do unless you have words for them. Right, and this is an amazing thing that we can do, and it turns out that um, that the seeds for that are present at birth. But before I want to talk a little bit more about language, I did want to mention uh, Jean Piaget. At the turn of the century, he wrote a book called Origins of Intelligence in Children, which in and of itself is sort of like a revelation because what? Intelligence in children at that time period. Yeah, just the idea that they're just bumbling buffoons that still have everything in the world to learn and and then under certain definitions aren't even real people yet. Right. They're not exactly. They're not, they don't quite have a personhood right, yeah. yet. Um, they haven't acquired enough information. So that's what they used to think of as, as children just uh, who are, you know, soon to be adults that haven't acquired enough information. Um, but what he found was that qualitative thinking changes. In other words, different kinds of learning comes online at different points in development. 
And so you kind of think of it as like we're preloaded with these modules in our brain, but they don't fully develop until they get the cues that they need. So I did want to flip over really quickly and talk about uh, Patricia Kuhl. She has a great talk called The Linguistic Genius of Babies. And she says... Uh, that from zero to six months, babies are, quote, sh- citizens of the world. And they can distinguish between pronunciations in every language, something that no adult brain can do. Because wow. we eventually get pretty specialized in our language, right, in mm-hmm. our abilities. And she says that between eight and ten months, babies exhibit statistical computation skills and their ability to pick up and analyze language. So, in other words, they can take into account the relative frequency of the sounds they hear and the transitional probabilities between syllables. And this is what she says is statistical learning. So this is all happening in their mind as, as we adults throw a bunch of baby talk at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, parentese is actually parentese. called parentese. Oh. Uh, also called motherese, uh, but is actually really important yeah. because there's that that sort of um, the sort of changes in in tone are important for the child to begin to understand these uh, different melodies of language. But that zero to six month thing is really fascinating to me because if I hear Mandarin, I'm not going to be able to distinguish uh, between certain syllables because it is not native to it's my just an understanding. Orange. Yeah. Yes, it's just an orange to me. It's not a language. Um, it's barely making a sound, but yeah. And why? Why are people always throwing? Uh, I was gonna make a really bad joke about throwing no, oranges bad, at each other and trying welcome. to communicate. Yeah. But now you're um, talking about the musical instrument. I'm sorry. No, not the mandolin. Yeah, nice. Uh, but no, I mean, this is fascinating. Like how my ear has shut that out, that ability. But mm-hmm. these zero to six month old kids, these infants, can actually distingu- distinguish between these sounds. And she, uh, Patricia Kuhl, also says that kids by age seven begin to fall off a linguistic map. What she means to say is that language acquisition is absolutely open and optimal before age seven. So, and of course, you know, most people our age uh, didn't begin language lessons until later on in their lives, right. which is sort of the wrong thing to do. Um, but that, because you're, by the time you're seven, your brain changes and you're, pr- you're pruning a lot of the neural connections that you don't necessarily need. So we kind of lose that ability um, to some extent. But one of the things that she points out is that this one-to-one interaction is really important. You have to see someone else's eyes in order to acquire language. And we'll talk about the eyes and the importance about that a little bit. So uh, we, we did a whole episode, I think more than one, on math. And uh, in that, we mentioned uh, that, uh, that babies are capable of algorithmic thinking, even in early mm-hmm. age. They don't, have, they don't have numbers. They don't have this. And this gets into the whole question of, is, is, again, is math a human invention or a human discovery or mm-hmm. something else? But the idea here is that even though babies can't rattle off one through ten, they, they have number sense. They yes. can they they can think algorithmically about the world around them, which is, which is, if you stop and think about it, that's I mean that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, versus our sort of accepted mainstream viewing of oh the the child must be taught language it must be taught math, but it already has math. Yeah, and this is why artificial intelligence is interested in babies mm-hmm. because in this way, uh, as Elizabeth Spelke says, they are root. Um, it's where human cognition and organization of the human mind begins. And, of course, we want to try to do this with computers as, as best that we can. Um, I wanted to mention the world's first stored program, Electronic Digital Computer, 
this was in 1948, and it was called the Small Scale Experimental Machine. It was also nicknamed Baby. Ah. And uh, one of the programs that ran on it was designed by Alan Turing. And we've talked about Alan Turing before in terms of AI. He's a pioneer um, in artificial intelligence. And uh, tragic Alice, figure, but uh, very. I know. Yeah. I was just thinking about that yesterday. I was when I was revisiting some of the material. Yeah, there's a great uh, Radio Lab episode. Uh, I think a shorty, or maybe it was a longie. I don't know. But there was a recent Radio Lab episode about him that's uh, really heartbreaking. Yeah, he as a as an individual is very very interesting and um, certainly brilliant. Uh, he was. But Alison Gopnik talks about Turing. She says that the classic Turing problem is, could you get a computer to be so sophisticated that you couldn't tell the difference between the computer and a person? Uh, but then Turing said that there was an even more profound question, which was, could you uh, get a computer, give it the kind of data that every human being gets as a child and have it learn the kinds of things, things that a child can learn? Again, this is the root uh, brain that we're talking right. about, and certainly machine learning is uh, is a huge part of our ongoing uh, development of AI. Yeah, you know, like in creating machines that work alongside humans, we want to do that so that they can they can learn from their environment. So machine learning is is key. And if you want to learn, if you want to discover how something learns, the infant is the place to look. Right, and she says because they have inductive learning techniques as well, just like computers. And she even brings up the point that about 15 years ago, researchers created Bayesian causal graphical models. Uh, Bayesian is basically like this inductive learning, right? Um, and these models map out the way the world works for computers and uh, also map out patterns of probability. And this was really an advance in computational um Formal computation, I should say. And about that same time uh, that these computational systems were coming online, cognitive psychologists began to form the idea that babies are doing very much the same thing. So you brought up this number sense that, that kids have. And what we're talking about here is Bayesian re- uh, reasoning that they can take a random sample and understand the relationship between that sample and the population it's drawn from. Right. So they can tell, they can tell the difference between... Um, Three red balls and nine red balls. Yeah, not so much maybe three red balls and four red balls. It, it you know it becomes an, an algorithmic distinction there, but um, but yeah, they, they've already got that hardwired in. Yeah, I mean they are kind of like born accountants because if you give a, a baby uh, a picture or an array of dots and there are four dots and you have another array of twelve dots and you play sounds that four sounds, mm-hmm. they will begin to look at the four dots. If you play twelve sounds. They look at the the uh, array of twelve dots, and it doesn't matter how much time or the length of the sound, as long as there are four of them, right, or twelve of them. They will still do this. They still have this understanding of more and less, as you say. So babies come preloaded with a little bit of math, but they also come preloaded with a little bit of physics, which yeah. is pretty crazy. Because um, it's it's again, it's easy to think of the baby as like the baby has no idea how the world works. Uh, you know, it's this everything's magical to this uh, creature, right? Uh, you know, he, he thinks I disappear when I do my uh, my, my peekaboo hands, but that's not the case because uh, ultimately this child is born into a, a world again of uh, of a three D world. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, four D, three spatial dimensions and one of time. Uh, it's full of fixed and movable objects they have to navigate, and so they have the the gear in their head already to deal with this kind of world. And so they intrinsically know things such as, and this was kind of heartbreaking in a way, that teleportation is impossible. <laughs> yeah, they that, do. <laughs> that they know that an object cannot disappear from 
point A and appear in point B without physically traversing the distance between. Yeah, they know about object permanence. They get that. And they, they get that that one object can only occupy that time and space at that, at that moment. Uh, Spelke says that babies as early as two months can begin to understand this. And what they did is they took two cups. In one cup, they put one cracker. And, but they did these, these hand motions like they were continuing to put, put a cracker in it. Mm-hmm. And then in another cup, they put two crackers, but they didn't do multiple hand motions. And what they found is that over and over again, the baby kept reaching for the one with more crackers in it, even though they had sort of done this sleight of hand, uh, hey, look, doesn't it look like I'm putting a ton more crackers in here? Mm-hmm. So she's saying like that, that ability is, is present in two months. Which oh, is amazing. Wow. So you need to bring a baby with you to the uh, the con man with the cup game, the <laughs> shell game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bring a baby; he'll see right there. You take him for all he's worth. All right. Yeah. And then after that, like if the baby, I don't know, turns one or something, forget it. No, yeah. uh, I don't know what time limit that has. Uh, actually, I think that we just build on that, and that's sort of her point. And she also says that they're born Euclidians, and they use geometric clues to navigate through rooms. Uh, for instance, they're more likely to use the lengths of walls in a room to remember where a toy is hidden. And even when they get older and they're three or four years old, um, and they can name, like, oh, that's a red wall, yeah. they still will use the, the actual um, geometric clues, the length of the wall, rather than naming the color as a way to navigate. All right, now here's another um, question. I mean, we, we, we with babies, um, we, with older children, we you know we're often it's often easy to sort of judge them as sort of uh, like non-moral, self-centered monsters, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, me, it's, me, me. Yeah. So you look at a baby and you're like, that baby doesn't have morals. It doesn't know right from wrong. It doesn't know what a you know a, a criminal is. But uh, the research has actually shown different. Yeah, there's an article from io9. Uh, it's uh, babies are already superior to us, to the rest of us, by 15 months. That's the title of the article. And what they were saying is that until recently, it was thought that, that children didn't understand altruism until at least two years of age and that they didn't have a sense of fairness until they were six or seven. But it turns out they do have a sense of fairness and altruism. University of Wisconsin researcher Jessica Somerville had 47 15-month-old children sit on their parents' laps while they were shown two videos. The first video had three characters, one of whom had a bowl of crackers. See, the food thing is really important to yeah. these kids. That's, um, the, that's the language they speak. That's right. They're like, I get this, I'm, I'm laser-focused on the food. Uh, the person shared the crackers with the other two, once in equal portions, and then with one person getting more crackers than the other people. So they see this, this sense of unfair, unfairness unfolding. The second video was exactly the same thing, only this time around with milk substituted for crackers. Uh, so the researchers were on the lookout for something called violation expectancy. And this basically means the baby's paying more attention when they're surprised. And this is important, too. Spelke, Elizabeth Spelke, really keyed into this gaze mm-hmm. um, that infants have. And it's really important because we talked about the eyes and learning. And uh, there are ways that you can actually determine what a baby is thinking or reacting to with with the, their facial uh gestures. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's like, well, how in the world do they know this is happening? It's because they, they're basically videoing, videoing these kids and um, tagging these looks of surprises. Uh, so anyway, the baby's attention tended to perk up really a lot when the milk and crackers were unevenly shared than 
when they were distributed equally. Because and that plays into the algorithmic thinking. They can definitely tell if someone's being slighted by a, yes. a significant margin. Yes, because they expected it to be equal. That mm-hmm. was their expectation. Again, we talk about our, our brains. They know what halvesies is. They yeah. know what halvesies is. They we have these this pattern recognition hard baked into our brains. Um, so another experiment was then done with the babies. They were offered two toys. One was really fancy and one wasn't. And so they then selected the toy that they preferred. And then an unseen experimenter came into the room and asked to share the toy. Okay. Uh, only one third of the kids did. But here is the kicker. 92% of the babies who shared their preferred toy also paid more attention to the unequal sharing video. Hmm. Okay. So, in other words, the vast majority of babies who gave up the toy they liked, an act of altruism, were the ones who were surprised by the act of unfairness. And this is pointing to, like, clear perception of, as you say, havesies or unfairness, injustices or injustices of the world. Wow. And uh, and I've also seen some experiments that involve, like, colored blocks, where colored blocks are, are, are uh, being villainous to one another, or, or even yeah. puppets. Yeah, puppets. Uh, which uh, which immediately brought to mind Punch and Judy, but um, but I'm trying to think of anybody's really moral in Punch and Judy. I mean, because Punch is awful, and then he runs afoul of the police who are kind of awful, and then the the devil and death. I guess death I is there. Yeah, Punch and Judy is actually really um, it's kind of heavy stuff for a kid. Yeah, it's, it's dark stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, I always think about it for the Center of Puppetry Arts here in Atlanta because they have a, a museum and they've got the Punch and Judy. And they uh, always they scare the, the heck out of me for some reason. We, uh, my, my wife and I uh, went there once when they had just for, I think, two nights, they had uh, a Punch and Judy, a modern Punch and Judy um, act come in that uh, market themselves as the world's best Punch and Judy show. If you do a search for that online, you'll find them. And, uh, and they, these, these are uh, like a young couple. I don't know if they're a couple, but a young man and a woman. Uh, who like learned uh, Punch and Judy, uh, which has a different name in French, but I can't remember it. Like each country, European country, has Punch and Judy, but yeah. they have different names. But they learned the, their puppetry craft on the streets of Paris, like sleeping on the streets in their uh, in the puppet theater turned on its side. And so they were just masters of of the old school Punch and Judy show, and they they put it on, and it was phenomenal. It was just hilarious, huh. and and the and just expertly done. So um, so. Punch and Judy. It's easy to look at it and think, "Oh, well, that's that's low puppetry. That's that's nothing." But it's it's quite an art form. All right. Well, and babies might appreciate it. I think that they would for sure. Uh, so, speaking of Punch and Judy in Paris and babies, uh, when we get back, we will actually find out what babies have to do with Paris and, and even cappuccinos. All right, we're back. Uh, babies need cappuccinos. Is that where we're going with this? Yes. Fuel them with lots of... I mean, forget the milk. Just <laughs> fill it up with cappuccino. Um, okay, no, we're, we're going to get to this idea of babies and cappuccino in Paris in a moment. But Alison Gopnik, again, I wanted to bring her up. Um, she has a talk called What Do Babies Think? Which is very interesting. And she talks about how babies have a different consciousness than us. And I think it's a really interesting idea because she says, if you look at an adult... An adult is basically using sort of like a flashlight to laser focus on something. Right. There's something we want to look at and think about. We point the light on it. We block everything yeah. else out. I'm thinking about my work. I'm thinking about my life. I'm thinking about what that guy in the subway is doing. It's it's just one thing after the, after another. We have to focus on something and everything else sort of fades uh, into the peripheral vision. 
babies use more of this sort of lantern to to fill their consciousness up with. So I'm not focusing on any one particular thing. The light is illuminating the room. Yes, and so she's saying it's not that they uh, don't pay attention well. They they can't not pay attention is the problem. And they're saying that it's driven how it's driven by how information rich their world is around them. And that when you look at their brains, instead of just uh, squirting a little bit of trans- neurotransmitter on the part of the brain that they want to learn, their whole brain is soaked in neurotransmitters. Wow! So they're like they're sp- they're sponges. They're just they're like hyper conscious of the world around them. Yes, blocking nothing out. Yeah, and you have to think about it this way because this is really when the brain is like crazy active, and as you get older, of course, those neural connections begin to get pruned away. The stuff that you use, stuff you don't use, and you get a more selective brain. But for the time being, um, you do have this neurotransmitter soaked brain, and this is why that they have that sort of lantern vision of everything. They can't really get anything out of their heads because they're considering everything. Um, so she says, what's it like to be a baby? It's like being in love in Paris for the first time after you've had three double espressos. Wow. So it wasn't cappuccinos, but espressos. But, I mean, this also plays right into, I mean, just one of, one of many reasons for why uh, stimulation and, uh, and uh, both on a, a, like a, a physical level but also an emotional level is important. Uh, to right. a young child because they're they're sponges and they need to absorb. They need a world to absorb. They need to see the sky. They need to interact with people. Um, right. And that's I, I mean that's on one level that's kind of funny. But there are children out there, um, you know, particularly in, in orphanage situations who do not get to see the sky. Right. Uh, they they suffer sensory deprivation, um, and and it has a profound effect on them. And conversely, too, if, if there is too much stimulation, that's obviously when the brain gets overloaded. And we talked mm-hmm. about that, too, just in the scream episode. Yeah. About how that, you know, sometimes we have to scream because we all are overstimulated at some point. Yeah, like you show a baby Baraka and it might cry. It's too much to take in. It's too much for an adult to take in. I have to say I didn't cry. You didn't cry in No, Baraka? I might not be human. Oh. Even Every, the, everyone I know cries, not me. The scene with the, the, the homeless people and they're playing like Dead Can Dance in the background. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. The baby chicks getting sexed and their beaks burned? No. Okay. I'm a tough nut. Okay. Um, okay, so Gopnik says that, that this different consciousness, she thinks, is in some ways more conscious than adults are. And she says that she just has empirical evidence at this point, but she thinks that this this is a, a, pos- a real possibility, that kids are actually more conscious than we are. But then we'll never be able to really answer that until we actually can define consciousness and how it works which yeah. is always the big Good luck mystery with that. We've, yeah that's uh, first step one define human consciousness so, yeah. right yeah. yeah so there's this idea that creative people retain some of the same kind of different consciousness as she calls it and are able to tap into all these uh these different stimuli and think mm. differently there, which uh, which plays in nicely to the um like i always love the the c.s lewis quote quote about when i was uh you know about when i was young i just wanted to to Appear very grown up and all, and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and and now as an adult, he he celebrates the uh, you know the imagination of childhood and, and wants to keep it alive in him as, as long as possible, you know. Yeah, like well, Picasso, right? Yeah, same thing. You you think of like thoroughly grown up people, and they are the most boring individuals on the planet. I mean, you just push them over. You know, they're just sticks. You just push them over? Is that I, what you I don't do? push them over. But you just want to. You're just like, oh, look, you've just completely, it's like an orange that's just been squeezed out of all 
juice, you know, they're just a husk. And they're just like, that's just, oh, I don't even want to know that person. So if you're feeling bored, you have to go into your baby brain. Yeah. And you will find liberation. Yeah. I feel like any, anybody worth or knowing has some baby brain still going on. Well, at least baby, a little little nugget of it in some area of their life. Baby brain is good. Gopnik has a, a great take on this and creativity and and the world as an illusion. She says, if you think about um, that from the perspective of human evolution, this idea of the, of the baby brain, our great capacity is not just that we learn about the world. The thing that really makes us distinctive is that we can imagine other ways that the world could be. That's really where our enormous evolutionary juice comes from. We understand the world, but that also lets us imagine other ways it could be and actually make those other worlds come true. That's what's innovation technology, uh, or that's what innovation technology and science are all about. Think about everything that's in this room right now. There's a right angle desk and electric light and computers and window panes. Every single thing in this room is imaginary from the perspective of the hunter gatherer. We live in imaginary worlds. Yeah, I mean, we have this profound ability to simulate possible futures and act accordingly. Yeah, so it makes sense that the baby brain would need to do this, that we would, from the get-go, start to try to do pattern recognition and and name things and dream up things uh, and be innovators, Um, which I think all of this, to me, is is going back to, again, language language acquisition and this importance of, of being able to look in another person's eyes and learn from them specifically well, language acquisition. And Patricia Kuhl has done a bunch of studies about this, that kids who are taught other languages do not acquire it through CDs or television or other forms of media. One-to-one is really important, mm-hmm. which then sort of puts a spotlight on the relationship between a, a caregiver and a child, um, this interaction between them. So you're looking in a baby's face, and uh, the baby's looking in your face. And... Uh there's facial recognition going on there. Uh, obviously, a baby can identify its mother mm-hmm. by looking in the mother's face, which sounds kind of you know, like an overstatement of the obvious. But but it, uh, you, when you get into into neurologically looking at how how it all works, it's, it's pretty pretty phenomenal. And it's the kind of thing that we're we're again trying to replicate and and are replicating to a uh, large extent in computers. But the the baby has it programmed in from the start. So, yeah, what's probably one of the most important things to you as a child? Mm-hmm. Your caregiver staring at you and giving you visual cues about language, about the world around you. And yet, when you're a really young infant, you're completely hamstrung by your vision at that point. Right. And this, this leads right into which a really mind-blowing idea. It's not, uh, this is not a settled theory by any stretch, but it's a fascinating area mm-hmm. to think about. Ran across this article, um, Skeptic Magazine. Which, uh, if, if you're not familiar, uh, Skeptic Magazine uh, is the uh, publication that's uh, put together by uh, Michael uh, Shermer, who we mentioned in the UFO abduction mm-hmm. episode. He's the cyclist who uh, had an abduction experience due to exhaustion, and uh, and uh, and and then he went on to study it and explained it in scientific terms. And he's re- really big into taking things that are seemingly paranormal, and then and then let's examine it from a scientific point of view and figure out what's actually happening. Uh, you know, not alien. So he's not like a conspiracy nut or anything. He's a yeah. he's, he's a dude that's grounded in science and turning the gaze of science on things that are phenomenal. So unsurprisingly, there was an article uh, on Skeptic Magazine by uh, an author by the name of Frederick V. Malmstrom, and uh, he wrote an article called "Close Encounters of the Facial Kind: Are UFO Alien Faces an Inborn Facial Recognition Template?" 
his argument here. All right. So stay with us on this. Okay. So aliens, gray aliens, uh, like UFO, like unsolved mysteries, um, uh, close encounters of the third kind, kind of alien. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? This uh, this big uh, gray head with large black eyes and mm-hmm. a little mouth and a little nose, and in uh, these abduction. Uh, experiences the individual is perceiving these things like looming over them uh and there's generally like there's something surgical or or you know or or probe related going on in these uh, scenarios you know and they, they, there's a sense of you know there's some sleep paralysis or something and there's a sense of 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 being of losing control and uh uh you know listen to our episode on ufo abduction experiences for for a little more about the science of what is actually going on in these uh, in- encounters. But uh, the author here is focusing in particularly on that face. Like, why why would we see this gray alien face? And why do so many people see it? Well, The ve- same type the of same face, The same type too. of face. Now, one really good explanation for that is that we saw it on Unsolved Mysteries. We saw it on, on right. faces. On, You've on, been primed. We've been primed to see that. That is, we've, we've encountered this story before in our fiction and uh, and so it's ready to go when we actually uh, encounter a, a paranormal uh, experience on a neurological level. But uh, Malmstrom's uh, theory is that what we're actually t- uh, tapping into here is the infant facial recognition software uh, that uh, that that we have not used in a long time, but is still present. Uh, the idea is that, that baby's vision, uh, baby's vision, uh, an infant's vision is. Uh, is imperfect, you know. It's mm-hmm. like they're uh, they're far, they're nearsighted. Everything's blurry and bright. So, what does mother's face look like to an infant uh, with that kind of vision? A bulbous head, right? And two long slits for eyes, mm-hmm. and a little tiny uh, nose holes, and a bit of a slash of a mouth. And this is actually something that um, that was. Born out right by this attempt to try to mimic, as you call it, baby vision. At this point, like, what would this graphically look like to us? Yeah, and he uh, explored that by taking uh, taking this uh, this prototypical female face, uh, blurring it out, blurring the images out, and uh, and just applying these different layers that attempt to replicate uh, infant sight, mm-hmm. and you get something that looks a lot like, uh, you know, Encounters of the Third Kind, Unsolved Mysteries, Gray Alien Head, that's, that's stereotypical alien head. Yeah, and uh, you guys should definitely check it out. Just take a look at this, and it begins to really make sense. And then, of course, you, you look at this information, and you begin to wonder, and this is a little bit wacky, but you begin to wonder, are alien abductions or sightings uh, particularly in the context of false awakenings that we've talked about before, where your brain is coming back online mm-hmm. into consciousness, but your body is still in sleep paralysis, or is is could this idea that you see something that is other mm-hmm. just a ghost memory of your mother's face, one of your earliest memories as a baby? Yeah, because we have access, presumably, to all of our memories, just not all the time. So potentially in uh, this kind of sleep situation, you might be able to retrieve that. I know it's wacky, but it is uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I found it found it really fascinating. Again, it's taking some uh, you know a paranormal in- experience and uh, and then trying to to understand it 
through science. And it's just, uh, it, like I say, who knows if this holds up, but it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Well, and, and it underlines, again, what's some of the things ama- that are amazing about uh, how the infant mind works. Yeah, and I think this idea, too, of can can we revisit our infant minds mm-hmm. at some time? Is it through just these specialized periods of disrupted sleep? Um, or are we way past those those memories? And to what extent can we actually tap into it? And make it work for us, uh, so to speak. Because, I mean, if you think about it, we are all statistical machines. We just have these overlays of our experiences, which sort of shut out some possibilities for us in terms of what we can dream for ourselves or understand. Yeah. So if we could take it back to our root system and still be access our fully formed adult brains, that would be great. More importantly, the, the next time you're, um, you're leaning over the baby's uh, cradle yeah. uh, in your life... Uh, Imagine that, he, that the, the, the infant sees you as a, as a gray alien. And the next yeah. time you find yourself uh, curiously unable to move in your bed and you look up and you see this, uh, this strange gray head with big uh, black eyes, embrace it. Well, and that makes you realize why some people are terrified, if, if that were the case, that it was just a ghost memory of their mother because it's your mom, but it's not, yeah. right? Uh, so it's the other. Of course, I, you're going to be like, whoa, alien. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention real quick that Elizabeth Felke, fascinating uh, cognitive psychologist, she, uh, if anybody is interested, she actually took a lot of her data and she pitted it against uh, Lawrence, Lawrence H. Summers, the then president of Harvard, who in 2005 suggested that the shortage of women in um, the physical sciences could be due to innate shortcomings in math. She took all her statistical data from 40 years mm-hmm. And comb through it to to actually make the point that it, it um, that was not the case at all. There was no differenti- differentiation at all in terms of gender when it came to babies, children, and science, and and this uh, innate or not innate ability to grasp math in a meaningful way. Yeah. So if anybody is interested in this, uh, she has a debate with her friend, actually, Steven Pinker. We've talked about him before. He is mm-hmm. a neuroscientist, and uh, we know him more in the context of him calling musical abilities uh, cheesecake, right? Yes. Auditory cheesecake. Like, it's it just sort of happened by accident. And, um, but anyway, they have a, a very, very interesting debate on this topic, and uh, Spelke is amazing. She has very uh, interesting takes on this topic. And uh, and what are the, what are the the books that individuals can check out? Uh, individuals, listeners can check out if they want to want to hear more. Uh, Gottnick has a book, right? Uh, she does, I believe. I'm going to probably get this wrong, but I think it's called The Psychology of Babies. But you can just search for Alison Gopnik. Uh, you can check her out on TED. Also, Elizabeth Spelke. Um, there are two great resources if you want to learn more. Excellent. All right. Well. Um, we're going to skip the robot today because uh, he's got a busted wheel. It's, it's rough. He's all the way on the other side of the room, and I'm not going to get up and walk over there to get mail. No. Uh, but by all means, send us more mail. You can uh, you can reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, we were uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind there. You can find us on Twitter where we are Blow the Mind. We'd love to hear uh, what are your observations with babies. Uh, I know a number of you out there are, are parents or you've at least uh, you know babysat or you've, you know, you've had, a, or you had an infant uh, sibling. Or something. Uh, what are your, what were your interactions like? Uh, tell us what you think about the infant mind, and and have you glimpsed uh, some of what we're talking about in that child? And you can always drop us a line at bluethemind at discovery dot com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 